Joy to the World is a song, and I hope that by the time that you leave this morning, you find yourself aiding me um, because you can't get the song out of your head for the rest of the day. So uh, I was talking with Kelly this morning, calling down the hallway, and I, I have the whole entire time, uh, believe it or not, as I've worked through this passage and worked through this song, I had no idea that other songs didn't do this to me. I guess one other did it, kind of. But this one has been like permeating. Like I go around the corner, all of a sudden I find myself whistling the song, and then I start humming the song, and I'm singing the song, and it doesn't go away. So I just want to let you know that it is a joyful song, and because it is, evidently it stays with you uh, all day. And um, and so thank you, and you're welcome. And uh, and so that's my hope this morning is that as you uh, go through the rest of the day and are singing the song that it really does come alive for you this morning. But the truth is, is that Joy of the World is the perfect song, I think, to conclude our series on. And, and the truth is, is that the word Advent, as we've been looking, and you'll notice that all of the candles are lit because as we celebrate the first Advent of Christ, that event has already been celebrated as he came on, on Christmas Eve. We lit that fifth Advent candle. And so this morning, all these candles are lit. Because the truth is, is that Christ has already come in the first advent to die for mankind, to overcome the power of death, granting eternal life for all those who believe in him. And so the word advent literally means coming or coming into being or use. And it's important because joy of the world was actually written not with the first advent in mind, but with the second advent in mind. The second coming of Christ. In, in 1719, Isaac Watts published a hymn book comprised of several paraphrases of the Psalms. In fact, it was very common at that time that, these, that most of the hymns were written from the Psalms and sung actually directly from the Psalms. And so Isaac Watts decided that he wanted to create a hymn book that was really a paraphrase of those scriptures. And it was a poetic book. It was one that, that basically took poems and began to put things to music. But Watt's desire, as one author put it, was to put his Christian affections and convictions on paper so that others could join him in heartfelt worship and song. Yet as they were a blend of personal reflection an emotional reaction couched in rich theological convictions. He wrote this song as a, a response, really in essence, taking the truth of Psalm 98 and, and bringing it to light and bringing it to bear so that it would have the truth combined with the, the movement that God was, was doing and, and revealing in his own life with the passion that was seen as a result of these truths being manifested in his life. Now, joy to the world was taken directly from Psalm 98, which declares not the first coming of Christ, but declares the second coming of Christ. Now, the truth is, is that there was a simple error that led to this. The song, which is written, Joy to the World, the Lord is come, was mistakenly translated as Joy to the World, the Lord has come. 
And as a result of that, that little error caused it to be drawn into, about a hundred years later, into this kind of book of Christmas songs. But the truth was that it was written with an eye in mind for the fact that Jesus was coming. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare her room and heaven and nature sing. The idea was it was speaking to the second coming of Christ, not the first coming of Christ. But here's the thing. The, the importance of Christ's birth, even though it's in the first version, isn't lost, right? In the correct version, it's not lost. In fact, we can still tell of the story of Jesus coming first. It's still an appropriate Christmas song because the truth doesn't change. The reason that Christ is coming again is because he has already come. And so nothing is diminished with the correct version. But with the version that says that Christ has come, which is the incorrect version, the second coming of Christ is actually almost forgotten, is it not? It focuses only on the fact that Jesus came in a temporary reign. And so it is that Psalm 98 makes it clear that our joyful praise is tied directly to our hope in Christ's return, rooted confidently in his redeeming work. And so we can sing joy to the world confidently and with truth at Christmas time because the truth does not change. The reason that Jesus is coming is because he has already come. That's important, and in order to understand that, the best part about this is that Jesus is coming because he has already come. When we sing it just focused on his coming, we miss the fact that he's going to return. And that's the richness of Psalm 98. In fact, it's the reason that we praise God. It's the reason that we praise him joyfully. See, anticipating Christ's return as King, with the knowledge of his past and present work, implores us to joyfully praise him in song. Anticipating Christ's return as king, with the knowledge of his past and present work, employs us to joyfully praise him in song. His return, knowing this, anticipating this, because of his past and present work, implores us, it demands, it calls us, joyfully praise him. Now the best part about this song, this song, is that this is a joyful song, right? It says, oh sing to the Lord a new song. That's an awesome way to start the song. In fact, it's, I think it's particularly encouraging given the way that we see other psalms start. Right? There are times that we see in the psalms where we're told of the greatness and goodness of God. There are other times we told for God to call justice, to bring down his justice on mankind, to save and to redeem, to show mercy. But here, his people are instructed to break forth into praising him. In this passage, we're instructed to break forth in praising God. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Now, if I was looking at this passage, 
What was amazing to me was the truth that was right there, that when we think of the Lord and we think of what he's doing, what he's done, and what he's going to do, it should bring joy to our life. It should cause us to celebrate. It should cause us to sing a new song. Now, I don't know about you guys. One of the things that I love listening to are children as they grow. Every child seems to make up a song, don't they? Right? There's a song that they make up. Now, it used to worry me, because as I was a teenager, I'd walk around the house and sing these made-up songs by myself. And my mom used to ask, where did you hear that song? I'm like, that's not heard it. It's great. It's right there, right? <laughs> Coming from this mind over here, right? But, no, the, the reality was is that there was something about it that I remember giving my life to Christ. And there were just things that songs would resonate with me, and there were new truths that, that, that God was revealing. Not new truths that were new to mankind, but new to me. New understanding that I had that just caused me to sing differently about who Christ is and was. And is going to be in my life. See, the truth is that I think sometimes as we get older, we lose the idea of singing new songs to the Lord. As kids, we get it. We're excited, aren't we? We're excited about different things. Watch a child before Christmas. They're excited before the day of Christmas. There's anticipation, right? Get to Christmas Eve. The reason gifts are opened up on Christmas Eve is to be excitement is carrying over. And it's like, okay, let's let it burst a little bit. Let's let it leak out a little bit, right? Well, there's a joy in that. And what he's saying is, listen, I'm going to tell you why we need to joyfully praise God. We need to do it because, as he's going to show us, because of Christ's past and present work, but also because of his return. You see, the truth is that knowing God changes our song. For those who didn't know Christ, who now know him, their song is different. When I was growing up, the songs that I enjoy are radically different than the songs that I listen to now. Now, some people might think it's age, it's actually not. It really is the lyrical content of the songs. When I was growing up, the songs that I preferred, the groups that I preferred, Metallica and Guns N' Roses, Van Halen and Poison, I'm not proud of that one. Uh, Van Halen I'm proud of, but not Poison. <laughs> Sure. Yeah, Death Leopard was another one, yeah. And when I gave my life to Christ, what I found personally, and I'm not saying this is true, that everybody has to have that same experience, was that as I sang those songs and I walked down the hallway, I found that I was actually finding myself more frustrated and somewhat angry as opposed to joyful and, and praising God. And as I gave my life to Christ, I found myself being more drawn to those songs which were praising or honoring than ones that focused on the death and destruction of life. Now, do I, does that mean that I don't appreciate listening to Inter Sandman periodically? No, still enjoy it. Does it mean that I don't listen and enjoy some of that music periodically? No, it doesn't mean I don't enjoy it periodically. What it does mean is it's not where I choose to spend my time. And the reason is, is because I 
Now my song is different. The song of praising God has changed. My desire is not to spend time focusing on that which sets me apart from God, but my desire is to focus on those things which bring me closer to His presence. And so it is with that that I find myself drawn to a different kind of song. And that's true for our lives as well, is it not? That when we respond to the grace of Christ, it should change us. It should change us. And what I want to encourage you this morning is not to take from that, that we can't enjoy things that don't just simply declare of this grace overtly. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that if God has called us to praise Him with a new song, that our lives begin to move in a direction of seeking those things which honor Him and praise Him and lead to His joy, the, the joyous proclamation of His truth in our life, more often than not. See, the song of our life is different. It's marked by hope and life itself in terms of in Christ and righteousness. And no longer does despair, death, and sin rule over our lives. The song is different. Matthew Henry points out converts sing a new song, very different from what they've sung. They change their wonder and change their joy, and therefore change their note. If the grace of God put a new heart into our breasts, it will therewith put a new song into our mouths. See, as God changes our heart, He also then changes the song, the things within us that are declaring His glory. So why are we to sing a new song? Well, at the last part of verse 1 it says, For He has done marvelous things. Now this word marvelous is the word pala. And it means wondrous, or to, to do something wonderful or miraculous. So the author of Psalm 98 gives us the reasons then for joyfully praising the Lord in song. So we see here three reasons that we're called to joyfully praise the Lord in song. Well, the first is this. Christ's completed work of salvation. Christ's completed work of salvation. Now, notice this. In the Psalms, the Psalms are rich with theology. There's Psalms, we mentioned, that are Speaking of God's coming glory, it's speaking of God's greatness, his fact that he's creator, it's speaking even of some songs, or David calling upon God to bring his wrath upon those who are bringing, uh, bringing trial and suffering into his own life, who are walking in unrighteousness. And yet, in this psalm, the call is for his people, initially, to praise God joyfully. Isaac Watts in his day was dealing with a specific issue that seems to be so often confused as a new issue, and yet it is a very, very old issue. And that issue is this. The issue is that God does call us to sing about him with joy. And sometimes we can elevate the reverence of God so high that our songs become so somber And even at times cold, lacking emotion, that we forget that God has told us to praise Him joyfully. 
And so just like the Psalms where we have this reverence and we have deep theological truths that are being proclaimed, we also have times in the Psalms where God is saying for us to praise Him joyfully. With passion. With excitement. This passage here is telling us to praise Him joyfully. For a guy like myself, who is occasionally accused by my wife and my family of sometimes not having enough emotion, this passage right here is one that's very convicting. Because the truth is, is that we're to praise God with joy. Isn't there something different about a joyful sound? When you go to a sports game, you don't even have to be near the arena, but if you hear the crowd cheer, you know something good has happened. That's why it is when we joyfully praise God. It causes others to take notice, but more importantly, it causes us to be reminded that this is a great thing. This God that we serve, yes, we need to be fearful in, in the presence of Him in the sense of stand and awe and reverence, but we need to remember that it's a joyful thing that we have been able to stand in awe and reverence of this God. So Christ completed the work of salvation in verse 1 through 3. It says, His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. See, God's right hand refers to His power and His wisdom. God is the one who brings salvation and complete victory over sin and death. It's not us, it's God. See, and by His holy hand, His faithfulness, He makes known His finishes, His finishing work of salvation and makes it known to man. So God not only provides it, but He makes it known. So here's what He does. He gets it, and instead of leaving it there saying, if you want it, you're going to have to come and get it, he says, I got it. I died on the cross for your sin. I was raised from the dead three days later, overcoming the power of sin and death, providing victory. And I'm the one who presents it to you. So not only got it, but I'm the presenter. I'm the one that makes it known. This idea that Jesus is the one who makes it known, that God is making it known through Jesus, that he is the one that is coming to us with this gift. Colossians 2, 13 through 15 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, our sin. Put right there on the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He disarmed them. He basically said, listen, through the work of the cross, Satan has no more power. No more power. Isaiah 52.10, as the Lord has buried his holy arm before his eyes of the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. 
So God, in his power and wisdom, brings forth salvation, and in his faithfulness, makes it known. Here's what he's saying. I didn't stop at just providing it for you. Because I'm faithful, I showed it to you. I made it known to you. That's an awesome thing. Why? Because we're blind in our sin. We're blind in our sin. This week, as I was studying for this passage, I was sharing this morning in our prayer time that there was a, a little coffee house that I was at in East Bay, a little little branch of Starbucks, and it, it was one of those where you're kind of on top of everybody, and so you don't have a ton of privacy. And so I had my Bible out, I'm reading, and this guy sits down, and he says, oh, you're reading the Bible? I said, yeah. Little did I know that that was going to turn into a two-hour conversation. <laughs> and so it turned out that he was a Jehovah's Witness, and it really was his day where he decided that there was going to be a, a conversation or in his in his desire to, to, to just kind of spend time trying to convince me of what he understood the Bible to say. Well, the end of the, this discussion, as much as at times I actually tried to get away, um, he began, he was talking about how Jesus isn't truly the Son of God. He's not God. And he shared, he said, it's about works. It's about what we have to do. And so we kept going back to different scriptures that would point him back to, what does Hebrews 1 say? That God the Father calls the Son God. He says he's, he's worthy of worship. That Jesus is enough. And so I finally shared with him, I said, do you believe, do you see, honestly, that by rejecting Jesus, by trusting in your own works, that you're the same as the Pharisees. The Pharisees themselves rejected Jesus. And it wasn't to be mean or to be cruel, but it was to simply say, who you understand Jesus to be is not the Christ shared in the Word of God. And if you continue down this path, you'll begin to walk into your destruction or continue to walk into your destruction. As I shared this morning, one of the things that came out of that was as I stepped back and looked at him, as much as I think that there was a sincerity of wanting for me to understand what he understood, there was no joy present in his life because there was no confidence in the work of salvation. See, we have the confidence in the work of salvation because Jesus has completed the work. He's the one that went to the cross to die for our sin, nailing it to the cross, putting it there, being done with it. He's the one that has made known his salvation, as verse 2 and 3 tell us. He's the one that's revealed his righteousness. He's the one that's remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel, saying he hasn't forgotten his promise to Israel. And he's the one that has made the truth, his truth, known to all the ends of the earth. God's done it all through Jesus. And the beauty of that is that then we come and we say, I have nothing based on my salvation, and if I seek to find it in myself, you're right, I am going to be insecure and I'm going to lack peace. And there will be no joy. 
But when I look and see my salvation is that Jesus is the one who has secured it through his life. And that I've given his righteousness. All of a sudden, my security and my joy and my peace are tied not to myself, but to Jesus. And the completed work on the cross. That's something that you bring with excitement and joy. John 6, 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. God actually draws us to himself. He's the one that opens our eyes to truth. Verse 47 and 48 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in eternal life, I am the bread of life. second reason that we are able to joyfully praise God is Christ's current position as king. Christ's current position as king. See, it says, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Sing praises to the Lord. Make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. Now, what's interesting about this passage is that this particular part of the text says all the earth. So the very first part of the text are his people praising God for his redemptive work. Because the only way that you can praise God for his salvation is if you experience his salvation. And so I want to encourage you this morning, that if you don't know Christ, to know that salvation is available by repenting and believing on Jesus. That this is God's call here. His call here in Psalm 98, then, in verse 4, is make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. It's actually a call to everyone to acknowledge who, verse 6, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. It's saying, listen, if you haven't made, if you haven't acknowledged that Christ is King, all the earth, acknowledge it now. Christ sits and reigns in heaven today as king. King over all things. If you're uh, in preschool or uh, all the way through fifth grade, I want you to come up right now. You can come up right to the front of me. Come on up. So you guys can stand right down here, okay? Here's the thing. God said that we are to make a joyful noise to Him. And that in that joyful noise, that we're doing it because Jesus died on the cross for us, rose again. It's also because He rules as King, but even more so because of His return. And so here's the thing our worship of Jesus because of who he is and the work that he's done is to involve passion. It is to invoke in us a response that says, you are awesome God. You are great. Now, you can't ever really make noise without being able to make noise, right? So, you have to be able to make noise. And so, what I need Levi from you first is I need you personally to make a joyful noise. When you're excited, what do you do? 
What kind of noise do you make? Yay! Yeah. I want you to mean it though. Can you yell it out and shout it for me?
That when we praise God, there should be times when we are praising God. That there is a smile on our face, and it is fun. Why? Because Christ actually currently is king today. And as a result of that, we have this great freedom to praise him. And so it says here that we are to make a joyful noise. Now notice the instruments they chose. They chose the lyre. The lyre was used for celebration and feast. And they chose the trumpet. And the trumpet was the instrument of coronation for the king. So when we are praising God joyfully, guess what? What we're doing is we are praising him because it is a celebration and it is a feast. And it doesn't mean that we lose control of ourselves, and it doesn't mean that we do it out of order, but it does mean that we can come forward before the Lord and express that joy and that, that excitement and the fact that it is fun to live in a life with Christ. We're to praise God joyfully. And this is why he says here, joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. Sing, listen, go for it. Sing a song to the Lord. I want to encourage you. The next time you take a shower, sing. Sing to the Lord. Find a place where you sing to the Lord. Joyfully. Do it regularly. Make up words if you have to. And make up tunes. God didn't just call children to this. He called all people to this. The whole earth. Then he says here, White fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains, repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy, repeat, repeat the sounding joy. This was a device called fluging. And it was used to point out a level of importance, and what would happen is three different groups of people would come in and sing those different lines together. So it was an overwhelming presence. That's what we're looking for when we praise God together corporately. It's not this chaotic approach, but rather the sense that God is doing something more and new that I might even not know about. It is when we come together corporately that our joy begins to help other people experience the joy of Christ in his work. And it proclaims the truth of Christ in his work. Do we walk in joy? We're actually encouraging others in joy, which is proclaiming Christ's truth as his truth is being proclaimed, which is creating us to walk in a greater confidence of his joy, and it becomes that. And I think that's one of the things that occasionally misses at times, because specifically as churches who, who are doctrinally sound, our conservative nature at times hurts us. Because at times we feel kind of chained to really express the joy, the enthusiasm, the passion that comes from knowing Christ and from Christ being made known to us. 
The third reason, then, is Christ's coming return and righteous reign. Christ's coming return and righteous reign. So his completed work, his current position, and now his coming return and righteous reign. It says, for he comes to judge the earth, he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. See, Jesus is coming again. In fact, notice the progression in that all creation is to praise the Lord in joyful song. So first he starts with his people praising for the redemptive work of Christ. He then says all the earth ought to, to praise because of his position, currently as king, and then on his return for everything. Everything will praise him joyfully in song. In fact, Roman 8 tells us that the entire creation groans for his coming glory. See, God's redemptive story is not just that he comes to redeem mankind, but it's also that he has come to redeem his creation. He is going to take what is so beautifully seen in a fallen world and make it perfect taking it out of that destructive phase, marred by sin, and making it more beautiful and majestic than we can ever imagine. His redemption is for all creation. His redemption is for the creation to respond as well as those who have had faith in Christ. Hebrews 9 adds this, and I want to encourage you to write this passage down just as we, we come to the end this morning. But Hebrews 9 says this, it says in verse 24, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin, by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So here's the thing. The first time he came, he came to die for us. To complete the work of salvation. That's why he said on the cross, it is finished. The second time he's coming, it says to save those who are eagerly waiting. Meaning that he will redeem, he will come back, he will make new. And as this passage says in Psalms, that I think it says just wonderfully, he will come and he will reign. He will reign in righteousness. And he will judge people with equity. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. What does that mean? He will be just. And we will look and we will say, yes, it is just. Even those who have not believed on him and are going to experience eternity apart from him as a result of their lack of repentance. His justice will be ruled, will be right. I think it's one of the things that we struggle with as Christians. We can look at the world that we live in and see the divided political minds and we can jump to different political systems and say the world is screwed up. And the answer that we should say when we hear that come out, we should say, of course it is. 
because it's fallen. But we have a king who will return, and he will set his government right. Meaning he will govern with righteousness and justice, and there will be no more sin and sorrow. We have a looking forward to the coming of Jesus. Because he will rule in righteousness and he will judge with equity. He will give what is due, due. And for all those who haven't repented and believed on him, they will inherit an eternity apart from God. Suffering. Experiencing the wrath all those who believe, they will experience the joyful perfection of a restored creation and a renewed and restored body and life in His presence. Luke one thirty-three. I thought it was finished to end it with a verse that really got us started in this series five weeks ago in terms of the story of Jesus coming, but in Luke 1, 33, it says this, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will have no end. Jay Ligon Duncan says this, he says, The Lord is coming, and when the Lord comes, he's coming as king. He's coming as judge. He's coming as ruler. In other words, this is the announcement of the psalmist. The Lord wins. It is that hope that animates true Christian worship. That the Lord wins. Our hope is not the Lord is going to get us out of this world by the skin of our teeth just in time. And he's going to leave it to crumble. And we're going to go off and float on some cloud somewhere. The hope of the Bible is that God wins. This is my Father's world, and He's going to take it back. The Lord will reign. And this is why we sing, enjoys the world. He rules the world with truth and grace, and makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness, and the wonders of His love, and the wonders of His love, and the wonders, wonders of His love. last four weeks prior to this Sunday we've been celebrating and focusing on the first advent of Christ Christ bringing his son and fulfilling his promise it is because God has fulfilled his promise in the first advent and reigns today as king that we can confidently and joyfully praise him with hope knowing that he will fulfill his word to return and reign righteously over us. That's his promise to us. And so now, for the remainder of the 48 days of this next year, 48 days until the next time that we celebrate first advent, we celebrate the second advent, the coming of Christ again and restore his people to judge the world and to lead and rule in righteousness.
That's something worthy of joy and praise, is it not? And may we celebrate that coming again, that looking forward every Sunday that we worship together.